You probably didn't have a chance to listen to every episode of DIA Connections Season 3. So now you want the Cliff Notes version. We get it. Time is tight. Precisely why we do a best of show. We also do it because it's fun. We had really interesting guests speak to a variety of topics. Before we get underway and play you some cuts, here's a small sampling. We spoke to a music professor who at one time spent a moment in time as a spy. Sort of. For me, this was a super duper adventure. Like, why wouldn't I do it? My gosh. We sat down with an attaché who was in Ukraine prior to the war. Leading up to the actual invasion, you started seeing some of this military equipment like fan out and spread out across the border, what you might call an attack formation. A flight nurse shared her experience of surviving a plane crash during a rescue mission of children from a war zone. I knew we were going to have a crash landing, and I thought, I am going to live through this to tell this story. And that was just weird because it was like a sudden intuition or knowledge that this plane is going to crash and I am going to live to tell. We talked to a war photographer on the ground in Ukraine who witnessed rocket attacks on innocent civilians. Another round came in that came in closer. I popped up and then another round came in literally like... I don't know, 25 feet from us. And I saw the flash. More than 100 guests on 30 episodes in three seasons of DIA Connections, the intelligence community's best podcast. At least, that's what people tell me when I walk down the hall. DIA Connections is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. And if you're a loyal listener, you're going to appreciate this best of episode. You remember when people used to release albums and records? They would always sneak a new song or a live cut into their best of albums. Something for the diehard fans. Well, rest assured, we've got something new in this show for the DIA Connections fans. And if you're a first-time listener, here's a refresher for you about DIA and DIA Connections. The DIA is the Defense Intelligence Agency, and we're a part of the Department of Defense. Our day job is to analyze the military capabilities and intentions of foreign nations. For the most part, that's pretty obvious. We're trying to keep an eye on how many tanks Putin has left or what his next move might be in Ukraine. But that's not what DIA Connections is all about. DIA Connections is about finding the connections between DIA and everyday life. We talk about the different people and places and things that you might not think would normally intersect with DIA. So thanks for taking the time to listen and learn about the Defense Intelligence Agency. And thanks for joining us for this episode of DIA Connections. And here is the best of season three. Our first show, Operation Babylift, Triumph and Tragedy, told the story of a DIA attaché who led the planning and executing of an air evacuation rescue mission of 3,000 orphan children from Vietnam during the chaotic weeks prior to the fall of Saigon in 1975. We rode through the streets of Saigon. There were desperate scenes with families separated and crying out for help, pleading not to be left behind, clutching at the last straw of hope. The mission got off to a shocking and catastrophic start when the first plane to leave the war-ravaged country crashed soon after takeoff. 
138 people died in the crash, including 78 orphans and 35 civilian employees from the Defense Attaché Office. Five of those were from the Defense Intelligence Agency. Miraculously, 178 people survived the crash, thanks to what was described as a remarkable demonstration of flying skill by the pilot, Captain Dennis Bud Trainer. We spoke with Captain Trainer as well as the flight's medical crew director, Regina Auni, who also survived the crash. Here's how they described it. It was just a loud, explosive noise. All the insulation in the upper part of the aircraft came like clouds of insulation flying about. Sitting up front, from my perspective, I hear a bang. At 23,000 feet, just about 12 minutes out of Saigon, the rear cargo door locks failed, leading to the near instantaneous departure of the entire ramp and pressure door system, resulting in rapid decompression. That was the bang. That was also when the black box fell into the sea. The cockpit filled with smoke, and the troop compartment checked in and said uh, that the door was gone and the, and the people basically were fine. And when I looked down, what I saw was the South China Sea. I got to my maximum descent speed and I started to pull back on the yoke and nothing was happening and nothing was happening, nothing was happening. And I saw all the hydraulic fluid all over what part of the floor of the aircraft I could see. The loadmaster went down and was telling me that the control cables are hanging out the back of the airplane like spaghetti. As I went down, I'm going faster and faster and I'm pulling back on the yoke and then finally the, the airplane started to go back up. went through the whole troop compartment and re-secured all the children, made sure they were secure. I was planning a long flight back to Saigon. We went through emergency preparation, designated who was going to do what when we finally stopped after we crash landed. I wasn't worried that I was going to die, that I was going to crash. I was going to manage this. It was just one more thing to manage. I knew we were going to have a crash landing, and and I knew, and I thought, I am going to live through this to tell this story. And that was just weird, because it was like a sudden intuition or knowledge or what, that it's like, this plane is going to crash, and I am going to live to tell. We got almost back to to the runway. We emergency extended the gear. But with the extra drag of the gear, I no longer had enough power, enough throttle authority to keep the nose from going down in a turn. The trouble was, instead of being around 100 miles an hour, we're nearly 300 miles an hour. So when we touched down, it yanked the gear off. I remember feeling the first impact We hit on one side of the Saigon River because they had been able to get the landing gear down. But then we went airborne immediately. We popped back up in the air and I said, oh, wait, we're going up in the air. And I could see now a river in front of me. And I said, oh, we don't want to go in the river. So I added power again. We 
skimmed across the water. Then when we hit the next time, that was a violent impact because that's where we sheared off the cargo compartment and we became like a little speedboat. That was when I had said goodbye to my wife. As I'm careening down the aisle, I'm feeling my right foot break in several different places. I remember thinking, what am I going to do when we come to a stop? You know, it's, it's going into that, okay, now how do I take care of everybody if we're sitting here in the, the rice paddies? I came to a stop, and I thought, I'm alive. Our second episode of the season, Ukraine, Children of War, was also about children leaving a war zone. A former DIA teammate, John, told us about his wife, Natalia, who's originally from Ukraine and still has family there. A few months after Russia invaded their country, her 14-year-old nieces were walking home one evening when two missiles flew overhead and hit an apartment building down the street. That's when their father determined it was time to leave Ukraine for America. We visited the girls just one month after they arrived. Here's an excerpt of the conversation DIA historian Paul Isaacson had with them about that frightening day back in Chortkiv, Ukraine. Their aunt Natalia is the translator. I understand you had an even more scary experience than just hearing an air raid siren. This happened one night when you were walking. Can you tell us what happened? So basically, uh, it was a typical evening. We were just hanging out, my sister, myself, and my boyfriend. We hang out with some friends before, and we were just going back home. And then I can hear some kind of whistle-like sound. And I just kind of told my sister, don't you worry, it's nothing. And then we hear first explosion happen, and um, then the second one happened, and all of a sudden, my boyfriend picked me up, and he was carrying me, and then I just, I couldn't hear anything. I, I think I just heard first two uh, bumps, and afterwards I couldn't hear anything uh, because it was so loud, and I guess part of that was shock. And I was, he just carried me uh, all the way down, uh, and it was quite scary. Did you hear it first, or did you see it first? I heard the explosion first, and I turned around, and then I saw um, a big ring of fire. It looked like a mushroom shape, but it was giant, and I felt the heat wave, and then all the other sound, all the sound of broken glass. You both have experienced something that almost no American children have ever experienced. Can you try to describe what you were feeling? I thought I was going to die. That was my first thought. Uh, eventually, I accept that thought that I was going to die. There was no other option. I just got scared and I was not leaving my home. I was staying at home because I was so terrified 
after everything that happened. And for me, I start appreciating every day that I have with my friends and family. I start appreciating uh, and being thankful for everything that I have and everyone I have in my life. The girls graciously agreed to share their experiences with us just weeks after that traumatic event. Understandably, adjusting to life in their new country was extremely difficult. New language, school, friends, customs, food, new everything. Before leaving that day, we asked if it would be okay to check back in with them in a year to see how they were doing. They agreed, and we did. We'll bring you that update later in this episode. Russia's invasion of Ukraine prompted millions to leave for the safety of neighboring countries. But even that was dangerous because civilian escape routes were being targeted by Russian military. President Vladimir Putin said that wasn't the case, but he was lying. And acclaimed war photographer Lindsay Adario had the proof. She was in Ukraine at a bridge being used as a civilian evacuation route. That's where she took a photo that will likely become an indelible image of the war. It appeared on the front page of the March 6th edition of the New York Times. And here's how she described it on our show, Ukraine, Truth Be Told. Another round came in that came in closer. I popped up and then another round came in literally like, I don't know, 25 feet from us. And I saw the flash. I popped up and everything was very dusty and chaotic and I couldn't really see what was across the street. There were four bodies. I saw immediately sort of the tiny little boots of a child and I thought, oh my God, I I, I couldn't believe that it was a family. I worked my way around. I took a few photos thinking to myself, I can't believe what I just witnessed. I have to make these photographs. But of course, I was dying inside because I have two children. A mother and her two children and a man who was a church volunteer trying to usher the family to safety were all killed by Russian mortar fire. As a general practice, the Times doesn't usually publish photos of bodies, especially when they're children. But this time was different. Russian President Vladimir Putin denied that his forces were deliberately targeting civilians, and this photo was evidence that told a different story, the truthful one. But Lindsay still felt the story was incomplete. I asked myself... Who were these people in life? You know, we've seen them in death, and and who were they? It didn't seem fair that the only image the world knew was of their sort of lifeless bodies. And so I said, maybe we should try to sort of piece their lives back together. You know, who was this woman and children? We made the decision to interview the father. It was the most devastating moment, I imagine, of his life, but he so graciously met with us a few days later. He had been out east taking care of his sick mother. So by the time he came back to Kiev, it was like three days later, he sat down with us and told us all about his life and his family and his wife and his children and why he wasn't there. 
and how he spoke to his wife the night before and was so sorry he couldn't be there to help them get across the bridge. And she sort of joked and said she would be fine. And then he learned about their death, of course. At the end of the interview, I said to him, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that I'm the one who took these photographs. You know, I, I hope you understand how important they are. And he looked at me and he said, of course, they needed to be published. And, and you know, he he said so much as, as painful as it was, he said, it's very important. And he understood profoundly the power and the importance of those images and that it would hopefully show the world that Russia was targeting civilians. Our episode, Iraqi Most Wanted Deck of Cards, told the story of how during Operation Iraqi Freedom in 2003, DIA created a deck of playing cards with pictures of key figures in Saddam Hussein's regime. The purpose of the cards was to help troops easily recognize the names and faces from the Most Wanted list. They were revealed to the world for the first time at a press conference, and they became almost as sought after as the people printed on them. Here's a clip from that show. And this deck of cards is one example of what we provide to soldiers and Marines out in the field with the faces of the individuals and what their role is. The public unveiling caught everyone by surprise, including Han's mom back at DIA headquarters. And that's really saying something, since he's the one that came up with the idea in the first place. All of a sudden, I had people running into the room I was in, and they said, Hans, Hans, you got to turn on the news. You got to turn on the news. You're on the news. And I'm like, okay, I'm on the news. This may not be good. (laughs) That's Hans, working in the Middle East Analysis Division at DIA. We'll get back to him shortly. But first, here's how his boss reacted to that press conference. I was at home, and I fell off of my bed (laughs) when I saw General Brooks raise his hand and show the deck of cards. I I was shocked because I'd never thought about a public-facing intelligence product (laughs) being part of uh, something that, you know, a general officer would show on national TV. I am Deidre Allen Light, and I was the Iraq Division Leadership Team Lead in 2003. Everyone wanted the cards. But of course, it wasn't for themselves. It was for an old army buddy, or their parents, or a teacher they had in high school. Demand reached a fever pitch, and getting a pack wasn't easy, no matter who you were. Here's Hans, again with Paul Isaacson. So there was a gentleman named George Bush Sr. Uh, I guess he he used to to run something called CIA, and uh, he used to be a president or something. And he had actually called and said he wanted a deck of cards. Well, then it just so happens that his son, George W. Bush, uh, was president at that point. And uh, later that afternoon, every single deck of cards in the entire uh, DIA was rounded up. And George W. was headed to the Pentagon for uh, a meeting. 
we ended up getting them all together and I hand delivered them over to the Pentagon to make sure that not only George W. Bush had a copy of them as the uh, commander in chief, but uh, when his father, the former president and uh, director of CIA, who had asked for a copy of them, uh, he also received a copy. I did not know that story. Thank you for sharing that. That is very cool. Hans was a reservist at DIA back when he came up with the idea for the cards. It was an ingenious way to get a job done. That's something we strongly encourage from potential officers. And you don't need to have military experience or a degree in math or engineering or political science to be a part of the DIA team. Music majors are welcome too. Yes, music majors. That's what attracted us to this next story. We call it Sax and the Spy. The saxophonist is Meryl Goldberg. She was also the spy. Here's the setup to that show. What if I told you it's 1985? You're 25 years old, and you just graduated from the prestigious New England Conservatory of Music. Your music of choice is called klezmer. That's what's playing now in the background. It's a type of Jewish folk music. You're booking gigs in Boston with your new band, playing this unique brand of music. When one day, someone asks if you'd be willing to take the show on the road. He wants you to go behind the Iron Curtain into the Soviet Union figure out a way to locate a group of musicians called the Phantom Orchestra, get their very valuable personal information, and then smuggle it back into the United States. In all likelihood, you're going to be searched by the KGB and followed by the KGB, interrogated by the KGB, detained by the KGB, and arrested by the KGB. Now, would that be something you'd be interested in doing? Probably not. But we spoke with someone who was. For me, this was a super duper adventure. Like, why wouldn't I do it? My gosh. She did do it. She went to the USSR and met with people called Refuseniks. They were Jews who wanted to leave the Soviet Union, but were refused exit visas. The tricky part for Merrill was getting information in and out past the KGB. So she developed a secret code hidden in her sheet music. Here's more from the show. Her sheet music became an encrypted language. Legitimate musical notations meshed with tiny hidden diagrams of names and meeting places details that would have been too difficult to memorize. It was a brilliantly coded murky mix of information decipherable only by the conservatory band. But one thing was crystal clear. It was useless if it couldn't pass the eye test at the Moscow airport. You have given your enthusiastic 100% yes to this trip. You've got this plan. You know, at some point, did you think, gosh, this is really spy stuff here? 
Did you get any training before you left? Yeah, so we had some training. If we're asked some questions, never lie, but never give up any information. Be firm, be confident. But what happened to us was something that, no, we weren't trained for. <laughs> And I think quite unexpected. They took us into a back room with three very big men, started screaming at us in Russian. They were asked what the purpose of their trip was, and if they knew anyone in the Soviet Union, and what relatives they'd be visiting. Bad cop, good cop, good cop, bad cop. One guy was screaming and yelling at us and banging on the table. The interrogation lasted three hours. Father's occupation, mother's name. Are you members of a political group trying to undermine the Soviet government? That was a moment of real, you know, like, oh my God, we are in it. I tell you, they went through every single thing. They, you know, makeup they opened up. They, they, it was crazy how thoroughly they searched our stuff. They went through every single page of my manuscript book, looking page by page by page, and then they handed it right back to me, which was incredible. Merrill's musical expertise was instrumental, pun intended, to the mission's success. She helped bring much-needed worldwide attention to the plight of Soviet Jews. We had another show with music as a backdrop. It was called The Last Monday in May. On this episode, the instrument was the bugle, and the sound was the eloquent and haunting melody that evokes so much emotion. The most easily recognizable military bugle call. And that's taps. Of all the days on the calendar, one of the most meaningful for us at the Defense Intelligence Agency is Memorial Day. That's the day our nation sets aside to honor and mourn U.S. military personnel who have died in our nation's wars. I'm Yari Villanueva. I'm retired from the United States Air Force Band, where I sounded taps for 23 years at Arlington National Cemetery. Yari is a subject matter expert on taps. He sounded the call at Arlington National Cemetery on thousands of occasions. He knows better than anyone when the 24 notes are played to perfection and when it's not. He told us about when the entire world heard imperfection at the most inopportune time. The call that was heard by more people around the world than any other was the call that was sounded on November 25th, 1963 at Arlington for the funeral of uh, President John F. Kennedy. And that was sounded by Army bugler Keith Clark. These are the bagpipes of the U.S. Air Force bagpipe contingent. Sounding off as the casket is removed from the hearse. When President Kennedy was assassinated, he was actually at home. And his first thought was, holy cow, I might get that call. By protocol, since Kennedy had served in the Navy, it should have been a Navy firing party and a Navy bugler that would perform those honors. 
for the president. Because of the president's unexpected assassination, the military district of Washington was sort of caught off guard. There was really no plans for this. And then Mrs. Kennedy surprised them all by saying, I want my funeral to be like Lincoln's funeral. On Sunday night, late, just before the funeral on Monday the 25th, they had one of the final meetings planning out the ceremony at the grave when somebody raised his hand and said, "Uh, who's providing the firing party and the bugler? And everyone looked at each other like, oh my gosh, we forgot. So Keith Clark receives a phone call like 2 o'clock in the morning on that Monday morning from his commander saying, you're the bugler. A very cold and chilly day, no overcoats, and of course, millions of people watching. The the body bearers brought the casket up, put it down. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, let us they had the short service and then came his moment to sound taps and on the sixth note because of the cold and he had not a chance to warm up He missed the note. Plain and simple. It happens to all of us. You know, sometimes you're playing a perfect taps and all of a sudden one note gets away from you. It was worldwide. And immediately people all knew about that note. Some thought Clark missed the note intentionally as a symbolic gesture to the sadness of the day. But he didn't. It became known as the broken note. It's like the crack in the Liberty Bell. <laughs> you know, It's something that happened, and it's always going to be there, and it's just part of our culture. Earlier, we told you about two young ladies who lived through a rocket attack on their hometown of Chortkiv, Ukraine. After that traumatizing event, their father seized on an opportunity to join family already living in America. For Camilla and Veronica, the now 16-year-old twins, transitioning to life in America was difficult. Initially, they struggled with just about everything. We revisited them a year to the day after arriving in America, and we're pleased to say they're doing very well. Happy was the word that they used. They're eager to return to Ukraine as soon as possible. There's no doubt about that. But for now, things are good. And we're glad they were willing to speak to us again and share some of their thoughts and interesting observations from the past year. One of the first things we asked was if they paid close attention to news from Ukraine. And since English is still a work in progress, they preferred to speak Ukrainian in order to express themselves better. Our translator is their aunt Natalia. 
Americans waking up to news that President Biden had arrived in the Ukrainian capital of Kyiv on an unannounced visit cloaked in secrecy. Nika mentioned that it's just incredible. She's very happy that we have such president, unlike Putin, who sits in his bunker and giving orders to kill other people. Our president is actually traveling um, all over the country and actually travels around other countries and asking for help and trying to take initiative. And that's really heartwarming to see what a great president he is and what a great person he is. The risk underscored by the wail of an air raid siren as the president strolled outside with President Volodymyr Zelensky. The visit coming just... Both of them were delighted to see Biden visiting Ukraine during these challenging times and showing his support and love for Ukraine. That's meant a lot to them. Starbucks, Chick-fil-A, and watching Stranger Things on Netflix made the favorites list. And overcoming the hurdle of getting good grades in school while learning a new language was easier than anticipated. They got mostly A's and a few B's. The reason for that may surprise you. It surprised me. They're basically saying the program is so much easier in the United States. The Ukrainian school program is way more advanced. When they saw this, thought, oh my God, this is a piece of cake. And uh, Nika mentioned that uh, she took the final test that you take for the class. It was geometry, and she was able to pass it without any preparations in first time. And she said it was like sixth grade uh, math for her. They enjoyed school and made some good friends. They also had an interesting observation about the differences of kids here compared to kids in Ukraine. So Camila said that one of the most noticeable ones would be the big difference in how um, mature uh, the Ukrainian kids versus the American kids. Just nature of um, hardship that some of the Ukrainian kids have to experience being post-Soviet Union children. They grow up much faster, so that's quite different. And also, um, what else was that? You said ah, she really liked it. Actually, she likes that nobody's paying attention to how you dress and how you look. She liked the acceptance uh, because in Ukraine there's always expectations that you have to look perfect, and every everybody expects from you to look perfect 24/7 in order to fit in into community standards. And here, you have. A freedom of expressing yourself the way you choose and you're not being judged just by your appearance as much as you are back in Ukraine. On that same episode, we also spoke with a child psychologist about the war's impact on children. She warned of events or situations that might trigger negative memories. That happened to the girls one day when they were watching TV and saw more attacks on their hometown in Ukraine, which happened to coincide with the traditional Memorial Day celebrations happening here. Basically, Nika said that the boys were really scared and uh, it's just reminding her of the sounds of explosions back in Ukraine. Nika said that she was so stressed about everything. The moment she heard first fireworks, she jumped. She was just scared, and then she was just crying and thinking about what's going on back in Turkey at the same moment. It was very traumatizing for all of us, including myself, knowing that our hometown is getting bombed at the same time that our neighbors are 
celebrating Memorial Day and shooting fireworks. Finally, we gave the girls a chance to express whatever feelings they wanted. They chose to share these sentiments specifically directed for teenagers. Nika saying that uh, you need to value your country. You would not know how much that your country means to you until you will be uh, forced to leave the country due to war or any other unfortunate event. That time when you realize how much you miss your country and how difficult it is to live outside against your will. And she also said that uh, you need to value all people in your life and don't take them for granted. Value people um, here, the people that helping you here in the United States too, and value every single life, including animals too, since we know that there have been lots of animals in Ukraine that have been hurting due to recent events. So she's just saying, be grateful for a peaceful sky underneath your homeland and be grateful for every single person and animal and creature in your life. A big thanks to the girls for letting us into your life, and we wish you all good things. And thank you for listening to this episode, and hopefully a few, if not all, of the last 30. If you wish to learn more about the agency committed to excellence in defense of the nation, you can by going to DIA.mil. As always, thanks for listening to DIA Connections.